the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us, and a special thank you to uh, PowerlineBlog.com's John Hendraker for sitting in for me for the last uh, three days of last week so I could got a mental health break before returning to East Berlin on the lake. That would be Chicago, Illinois, where I live. And um, we begin this program with a discussion of the pronouncements on COVID over the weekend as uh, states are moving in reaction to increasing caseloads to reinstitute lockdowns to the extent that uh, some of these states ever stopped with their lockdown policies. Uh, lockdown whack-a-mole continues to be the policy order of the day, even though eight months in, we're now back to where we were at the beginning, suggesting that the policy, the policies weren't particularly effective. And yet the shifting goalposts and the uh, ever-altering rationalizations. Uh, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, part of a panel discussion at the National Cathedral over the weekend, uh, he's really feeling his oats these days since Election Day. Very interesting. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, here's what he had to say about um, the new round of lockdowns around the country and mask mandates and other associated policies. We're not a country that would accept if a ruler tells us you must do this. I was talking with our U.K. colleagues just today who were saying the U.K. is very similar to where we are now in our because each of our countries have that independent spirit, but we don't want to be told what to do. Well, I understand that, but now is the time to do what you're told. <laughs> and I think it really is something that we should be doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's interesting. This is the uh, tyranny of the experts that uh, many people, myself included, have spoken about. What uh, Justice Samuel Alito spoke about in part in his uh, most excellent speech at the Federalist Society's 2020 Lawyers Convention last week, which we'll get to in a moment. The things he had to say about COVID regulations bears repeating and memorializing, truly. Uh, So there's Tony Fauci. Uh, We're not ones to bend the knee to a permanent political ruling class and their whims, except uh, this is a time where you should just bend the knee and, and, uh, and, and bend to the whims of that political ruling class. Huh. And remember, Tony Fauci versus Tony Fauci, there's Tony Fauci before the election and Tony Fauci post-election. Tony Fauci before the election? I think it will be easily by the end of 2021 and perhaps even into the next year before we start having some semblances of normality. Okay, so it's the end of next year before we uh, return to something approximating pre-COVID-19 normalcy. That's what he said pre-election. Post-election? 
Help is really on the way. You know, if you think of it metaphorically, you know, the cavalry is coming here. Vaccines are going to have a major positive impact. If we could just hang in there, do the public health measures that we're talking about, we're going to get this under control. Uh, Okay, yeah, I'm encouraged by the uh, word out about the Pfizer vaccine, as well as the word this morning about the Moderna potential vaccine, 94.6 efficacy. Okay. But yet uh, it was pre-election where it was to talk about the end of next year before normalcy. Oh, and by the way, that's also the position of BioNTech co-founder. The BioNTech co-founder, BioNTech is the partner in the vaccine development that Pfizer is leading. Uh, He also said normalcy perhaps next winter. So uh, explain to me why we should renew these lockdown policies when even with the prospect of vaccines that we now know, the efficacy of the Pfizer trials, the efficacy of the Moderna trials, you still have these experts in the development of these vaccines saying the end of next year. And yet you have Tony Fauci saying, listen to the lockdown politicians. And you have Michael Osterholm, who is part of the Biden transition team. Uh, he is the D.C. press corps uh, favorite epidemiologist right behind Tony Fauci. University of Minnesota, Uh, he said this in a recent interview with uh, Yahoo Finance. We could pay for a package right now to cover all of the wages, lost wages for individual workers, for losses to small companies, to medium-sized companies, for cities, states, county governments. We could do all of that. If we did that, then we could lock down for four to six weeks. And if we did that, we could drive the numbers down like they've done in Asia, like they did in New Zealand and Australia. And then we could really watch ourselves cruising into the vaccine availability in the first and second quarter of next year first and yes. bringing back the economy long before that. First and second quarter. Hmm. So that's the plan, huh? Uh, abide the lockdowns four to six weeks. The vaccines are coming online first and second quarter. One of the developers says not till winter of next year will we return to normalcy possibly. And that's was the same position of Tony Fauci pre-election. So what what is the four to six week lockdown right now? And the more the I mean, Mike Osterholm also delving into the area of uh, economic policy. Sure, he is, of course, tyranny of the experts. Uh, what does that accomplish again? How does that not put us in the same position we were in that we're in right now again in January? You know, like we suggested we would be right now in the summer. And yet here we are. And the uh, the, the, the running around with the hair on fire over healthcare capacity, hospital beds, and the like. No planning was done in anticipation of what was uh, anticipated in the fall here, in the, into the winter, anticipated in the summer. Now you're saying four- to six-week lockdown, even though we don't anticipate a vaccine really coming online to the extent that it would immunize uh, wide swaths of the population till second quarter of next year. That was the initial projection by CDC director Redfield and again, the arguments that we're looking at winter of 21 for normalcy. So what does the four to six weeks accomplish and why doesn't it, and how does it not put us back in the same place? This is um, 
Rand Paul's reaction to Osterholm's suggestion? You know, it scares me to death because, uh, but I think it's consistent with their philosophy. In the free society, individuals make their decisions based on risk, and they will make their choices on how they choose to, whether they drive a car, whether they go to a restaurant, whether they wear a mask. These would be individual decisions. But in authoritarianism, the central authority tells you what to do and when to do it. So these are the same people who also believe in socialism, a command and control economy, where the government dictates all of your economic behaviors. So it's not much of a stretch to believe that they would also dictate your personal behavior as well. Uh, exactly right. As Hayek, Frederick von Hayek famously said, to be controlled in our economic pursuits is to be controlled in everything. And isn't that the case? Uh, Rand Paul reacting to Tony Fauci. Hey, just do as you're told. You know, I've always said that I want to believe that he is well-intentioned, but I think he's biased in the sense that he believes in government solutions. He believes that submission and lockdown are fine. He's not too worried about individual liberties. But he also tends to gloss over the science because we've had this debate back and forth about immunity. And I've been saying all along that I think that children have some sort of pre-existing immunity. The tests are now backing me up on this. There was an article in Science just in the last two weeks saying that kids have antibodies to coronavirus colds and that there's cross-reactivity that seems to be protecting them. But the other thing is, is we have 11 million people in our country who have already had COVID. We should tell them to celebrate. We should tell them to throw away their masks, go to restaurants, live again, because these people are now immune. Don't tell that to Boris Johnson, who had COVID, recovered, and is now in hiding. I guess we're redefining immunity as well. Rand Paul making the note, too, the difference between uh, the case fatality rate and the raw volume of cases that used to matter when we were flattening the curve. It doesn't matter anymore when we're trying to alternately slow and stop the spread. Yes, we have four times more cases of COVID than we had in the spring, but we have half as many deaths. So the interesting thing is when you look at the mortality, mortality is down to about 88% lower than it was in the spring. And let me just give you an an example uh, close to my home in Illinois. What's happened? The initial Months of the pan, of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, March 1st to June 25th. In Illinois, there were 139,000 cases, round numbers, 6,800 deaths. Case fatality rate, 4.9%. From August 1 to November 8th of this year, 307,000 cases, so two and a half times the number of cases. 2,700 deaths, so fewer than half the number of deaths. Case fatality rate, 0.9 tenths of a percent. From 4.9% to 0.9%. You know, reduction by a factor of five and a half X. But again, we have to pretend that we haven't made any advances with respect to testing, with respect to treatment. Uh, we haven't gotten a better, a better handle on what the actual case fatality rate is and who the truly vulnerable are, despite uh, eight months of real world experience and 125 million tests. We have to, you know, pretend we don't know what we know in order to keep up COVID-19 lockdown theater because to be controlled in your economic pursuits is to be controlled in everything and there's a lot of politicians and mayor's offices and governors intend to do just that and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the show. Uh, moving from our discussion of uh, the balancing tests between individual rights and public health per the speech that uh, Justice Alito gave last week to um, the state of play with respect to Trump campaign litigation in the uh, half a dozen states in which litigation is pending. Seems to me you've got a couple of buckets of litigation that provide the potential for substantial remedies that could impact outcome, depending on how many ballots were collected by Pennsylvania election officials after 8 p.m. on election night when the polls closed. That could, if the Supreme Court takes up the issue of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extending by judicial fiat the collection of absentee ballots three days past Election Day, that could be an issue. Equal protection issues, the curing of mail-in ballots in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where some counties allow people to come in and correct their ballot or revote, and others did not. Uh, not allowing poll watchers to view the count in places like Philadelphia and Detroit. The issue there is what is the remedy if you can't do a recount? Because courts are going to be loath to throw out ballots, particularly in the hundreds of thousands, because a poll watcher was unable to watch the count without any more substantial evidence of fraud. And then the last is uh, what Sidney Powell was focused on over the weekend, which is the software system, particularly given some high profile problems with Dominion voting systems, or at least those administrating that software. For example, Antrim County, Michigan, where the initial vote was for Biden and then the corrected vote in that county was for Trump. Let's talk about Michigan in a little bit more detail and see what the prospects are there for Trump campaign litigation. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined again by Nolan Finley, who is the conservative editorial page editor of the Detroit News. Nolan, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate your call. So we're looking at about 150,000 votes spread, which is a pretty big Mm. spread in Michigan. And there are a bunch of lawsuits filed alleging fraud, asking election results be excluded in three counties, which would amount to scrapping 1.2 million votes. And this is related to not allowing poll watchers to watch the count. But again, I just find it highly unlikely a court would do that. Any court would do that without more substantial evidence of fraud being afoot. Yeah, that's not going to happen in Michigan. 150,000 votes, big margin, and you're not going to find in Michigan enough verifiable fraud to overturn the results of Michigan's election. You know, in other places where it's 10, 12, 14,000, you might. But remember that the Green Party candidate last time around asked for a recount in Michigan. They got 40% of the vote recounted before it was suspended, and they had changed 142 votes is all. So this is a uh, sort of a hopeless shot for the president to overturn the results here. Might there be some relevance for other states that are closer? And there was a Dominion voting systems problem in Georgia, too, alleged. Mm. But go back to that Antrim County example I mentioned, where there was a complete reversal of the outcome in that county with the presidential race. And if there's anything indicative of Dominion voting systems that their platform that uh, could have a more relevant application in states like Georgia. Well, you know, that was a Republican county run. Uh, the election process was run by Republican officials, and they know they knew they had an issue right away and moved to correct it. So I don't think that's, you know, an example that is going to uh, make much of a, of a difference here. I mean, they caught the mistake right off and corrected it. Now, um, in other places that uh, uh, where the error was less obvious, you know, this was a Republican county, and for it to vote so large for for Biden, you know, stuck out like a sore thumb. Might not be so so noticeable in other places, but how you track that down and how you fix it is the issue. Without 
starting all over with an election. And, and the, the poll watching issue, obviously in Detroit was one of those places where the election mm-hmm. officials covered up the uh, window so people couldn't see inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not allowing Trump campaign poll watchers to have a good view of the count going on. Now, maybe no fraud was afoot, but it doesn't inspire right. confidence when you're not allowing no. people to watch what you're doing. Well, you know, there's never been an election in Detroit in my tenure of covering elections here, and that goes back four decades, in which there wasn't problems with their vote, in which there wasn't incompetence of some sort. And, you know, I've, I've always said that the city clerk in Detroit, no matter who it is, disenfranchises more black voters than Jim Crow to incompetence <laughs> because so many ballots get lost, so many ballots get one year they couldn't count the ballots because they allow, or some ballots, because they allow boxes full of them to get wet and they wouldn't fit through the counting machines any longer. So there's always been election irregularities in Detroit. This year they took the very positive step of hiring a fellow named uh, Chris Thomas, who had ran elections for the state of Michigan through Republican and Democratic administrations for many years, man of high integrity, deeply respected. He monitored the vote. He worked with them going into the election. And, you know, there's a lot of confidence in Chris Thompson. I think the vote in Detroit actually probably went off better this time than it did last time or or any time in my history. Well, one uh, one other issue, the um, the assertions Mm -hmm. that vote count stopped in Detroit uh, during the the wee hours. You know, in in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in Madison, there were allegations of essentially early Wednesday morning hour ballot dumps. Is there any evidence to suggest that that occurred? And if so, why? Well, I mean, there was a lot of folks that thought that occurred. And, you know, I talked to some of the folks involved, including Chris Thomas, and he said, you know, what people were seeing, people who were not very experienced with the whole electoral process. In other words, hadn't been around this before. We're seeing fairly routine things and, and finding something sinister about it. I mean, that's been checked out. There's not much to it. The vote in Detroit went about like you would expect in terms of its breakdown between Democrat and Republican. Now, were votes added? Were votes tossed? I can't say 100% sure that that didn't happen or, or did happen. I've been very skeptical about the whole vote-by-mail process from the beginning, particularly the haste at which it was put in place in Michigan, and that it was run by a very hyper-partisan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Vincent. Well, I mean, and this whole yeah, and mm-hmm. and and it is worth noting. It's rather it's one of these anomalies that prompts some questions that uh, Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton in only four metropolitan areas in the country, 2020 to 2016, Mm -hmm. Detroit, Philadelphia, Madison, or Milwaukee, I should say, and Atlanta. Those are sort of four key metropolitan areas, you know. Good reason for that. I mean, that's more on Hillary Clinton than anything else. They hated Hillary Clinton here, and black voters just stayed home Mm -hmm. in 2016, and she never came here. Mm -hmm. Uh, She took the black vote for granted. No surprise that Biden performed, outperformed Hillary Clinton. I was at the NCAA convention uh, back in the winter here when all the Democratic candidates came to speak. And the candidate who got the roaring response when he walked out on the stage was Joe Biden. You know, he was Obama's vice president, very popular with black voters here, uh, has been associated with the UAW. Not surprising at all that he outperformed uh, Hillary Clinton. But if you look um, Donald Trump outperformed Donald Trump here, right. 20, right. 2020 versus 2016. And you would think that had there been massive tampering with the vote, that wouldn't have been 
possible either. I mean, he got more more votes here than any Republican ever has, I think. So Fair. I'm I have I'm fairly confident with that the vote reflected the reality and the intent of the voters of Michigan. Okay. Fair enough. He is Nolan Finley's conservative editorial page editor of the Detroit News, also the author of Little Red Hen, a collection of columns from Detroit's conservative voice. It must be lonely up there being Detroit's conservative vice, Nolan. Uh, Nolan Finley. It's not a choir. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take Appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Returning to our conversations uh, about COVID in England, the report now is after locking down the country for a second time just the other week. A report out today, COVID cases flatlined weeks ago, raising hopes for Christmas and last lockdown. Uh, this from Professor, this based on uh, a analysis by Professor Carl Hennigan, who is the director of evidence-based medicine at Oxford University. He said that hospitals are not being overwhelmed. They are running at normal capacity for this time of year. He highlighted Brits may be able to enjoy a somewhat normal Christmas if they prepare in advance by reducing contact in the weeks leading up to Christmas and so on and so forth. Paul Hunter, professor of medicine at the University of East Anglia, also told The Sun that the second lockdown could be the last. He said he believed the tier system had been working before the second lockdown was implemented, implemented nonetheless. Hmm. So uh, and why is Boris Johnson in hiding? New York City reporting uh, is the New York Times reporting as well as the Wall Street Journal could uh, close their schools as soon as today. Over the past month, the New York City school system has randomly tested more than 71,000 students and 42,000 staff from 3,000-plus schools. Only 189 came back positive. That's a infection rate, positivity rate of 0.18%. New York Times education reporter Eliza Shapiro noted, quote, one of the city's top health officials has declared that the public schools are among the safest public places around, unquote. And yet the story from that same outlet is that New York City public schools could be shut down by de Blasio and Cuomo today. This is about science and data. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you again, Dan. I want to talk about the happy news of the uh, Moderna trials today to twin with the Pfizer results, so that's real promise on the vaccine front. But can you can you help me understand why uh, England is locking down when disease experts are saying they flatlined in terms of caseload two weeks ago and, and the hospital system there is not in jeopardy of being overwhelmed and why the New York City public schools are being locked down potentially again today as being reported based on a 0.18% positivity rate among children and adults system-wide? Well, I, I can't uh, justify closing the schools. Uh, with the data in the UK where they are. Schools, especially younger kids under, say, the age of 12, have a pretty low rate of both infection and transmission. And there is a tremendous cost of prohibiting, of uh, depriving kids of their school experiences, both educationally and socially. But there has been a high rate of infection in the UK, as in other European countries. And 
they have been able to flatten the curve with some of these restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, France, uh, France had a skyrocketing rate of, of cases. They introduced uh, pretty draconian restrictions and have turned their curve around, and it's dropped significantly in the last couple of weeks. You know, it's easy to look for a confirmation bias data to make almost any argument, but with an illness like this, an infectious illness that increases exponentially uh, and has a long incubation period where people are uh, infected but asymptomatic, if you get behind the curve, literally and figuratively, you can, you can be overwhelmed, you can be crushed. And we've seen some of that in the Midwest, in the U.S., and including in your part, very part of the world. So it's a real dilemma. There are costs both ways. We have to look for the least bad alternatives. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can understand why people uh, uh, sitting here and listening to the show here in mid-November feel like we're in the same place as we were in uh, mid-spring and um, this is despite the fact that many people predicted we would be in the place we're at now over the summer, and there doesn't seem to be adjustments that were made, contingency plans that were prepared so that we weren't doing the same thing we were doing in the spring, which is worrying about flattening the curve to protect systems from being overwhelmed. Well, it's partly that we're not in the same place that we were in the spring because people are experiencing pandemic fatigue and are not behaving well. And so after uh, virtually every one of the holidays, Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day, we saw spikes because people uh, did get together in in smaller groups, medium-sized groups, large groups, often weren't weren't masked, especially while they were eating and and chatting. And that got us into uh, a bad situation. Now, with the holidays approaching, um, we're we're in really a dire predicament about uh, whether it's going to get still worse, and uh, our numbers are are really quite bad. Well, so, well, when we come back, I want to talk about the numbers a little bit and and how how we moved from uh, raw cases, how we moved from case fatality rate or even hospitalizations to just raw numbers of cases as the standard by which to inform policymaking. More with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology right after this. to the show. Uh, as uh, Senator Rand Paul had to say over the weekend in reacting to some of the pronouncements from um, experts like Tony Fauci and Michael Osterholm from University of Minnesota, I mean, there's there's cases and then there's case fatalities. Yes, we have four times more cases of COVID than we had in the spring, but we have half as many deaths. So the interesting thing is when you look at the mortality, mortality is down to about 88 percent lower than it was in the spring. So there's some good news here. A lot of good things are happening. We're doing better treating the virus, but we're also doing a better job at, uh, you know, I, I think there are, there's evidence that uh, there's rising immunity and people are doing a better job fighting this off. And there's 
uh, much more asymptomatic cases than there was in the spring. Uh, Joining us again is Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. And uh, Dr. Miller, what about what uh, Dr. Paul had to say about there's there's cases and this is an issue. But there's also the case fatality rate and the case fatality rate is substantially lower than it was in the spring. And so shouldn't we be looking at some more details with respect to infections and hospitalizations and, and who exactly is most vulnerable and and what's happening and how we can be more surgical than perhaps we were in the spring? Well, uh, Dr. Senator Paul is literally uh, whistling past the graveyard, uh, in, a, in a sense. Case fatality rates are not the whole story by any means, and that's, an exa- that's a great example of what I call confirmation bias, of cherry-picking uh, the data that support your, uh, your view. Uh, and the reason is that um, with the number of cases so high, uh, we're seeing more and more uh, of uh, cases of uh, persisting symptoms, sometimes serious symptoms, after so-called recovery from the acute illness, uh, even at times from uh, people who are asymptomatic at first, but then develop persisting symptoms. And these include uh, recurrent fevers, fatigue, malaise, uh, brain fog, uh, as well as um, cardiac and, and other manifestations. Do we, do we have any uh, indication on the, the uh, incidence of uh, those uh, extended, uh, extended uh, conditions? Well, Tony Fauci has estimated that it, in patients who are symptomatic from the acute uh, COVID-19 infection, it's somewhere around 25%. Uh, that sounds a little high to me from the numbers I've seen. But I can tell you the studies show uh, that in patients who have been hospitalized, so they've had fairly serious uh, COVID illnesses, uh, some 87% have at least one persisting symptom two months after discharge from the hospital. And uh, some of those go on to uh, a very serious uh, debilitating condition sometimes called long haulers or chronic COVID, uh, a situation, an illness that resembles chronic fatigue syndrome, where these people are extremely debilitated. Uh, And so uh, the more cases you have, the more hospitalizations you have, even if people don't die, they have persisting symptoms or syndromes that are very debilitating, both to them individually and to the healthcare system, because they need healthcare for for these uh, symptoms. Yeah, and, and I, I don't want to be cavalier about it, but I, I also, you know, again, that it'd be interesting to get a handle on it so we can make the kind of um, risk assessments that are required when we understand we're dealing with trade-offs no matter what we do, trade-offs of lives versus lives, quality of life versus quality of life, not just, uh, and I'm not just talking about livelihoods. That's a fair point. Um, with respect to uh, uh, what Michael Osterholm had said um, from University of Minnesota, he suggested that uh, four to six week lockdown could be appropriate if we could, you know, pay people for the economic damage. Um, well, I, I'm I'm a bit confused by that because four to six week lockdown, we have uh, the uh, co-founder of BioNTech, who's uh, partnering with Pfizer on their vaccine, saying uh, resumption of normalcy 
winter of 21, which is the same thing Tony Fauci was saying before the election. So if we're and and Redfield and others have suggested you're not going to have significant penetration of the vaccine, even if we were to come online before the end of the year, before the second quarter of next year. So if, if that's true, then how do you square a recommendation for a four to six week national lockdown with a timeline run for vaccinations? Well, I, I think um, Dr. Osterholm is entitled to his opinion. I, I happen to disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've criticized uh, a lot of pundits from being armchair epidemiologists and armchair virologists. He's a, uh, a scientist being an armchair economist, in effect. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think his, uh, his opinion is held by the rest of the the uh, Biden coronavirus task force. In fact, uh, it's been repudiated by another member who's been all over the media, Celine Grounder. Uh, so uh, I, I disagree with it. I can't square it. Uh, I, I think absolute lockdowns are probably a non-starter. And as many people have said, uh, restrictions on uh, our, our behavior and our activities and our businesses are not an on-off switch. They're more like a dimmer switch. And so uh, some, uh, some countries, some states, some localities have introduced uh, uh, non-extreme uh, restrictions, which is a reasonable way to go. At the same time, as I said earlier, uh, your dilemma is that with a, uh, an infectious disease that increases exponentially, if you get behind the curve and you're too timid at restrictions early on, you tend to get overwhelmed. And if you look at hospitals in many places in the Midwest, in, in North Dakota, in El Paso, elsewhere in Texas, the hospitals are indeed overwhelmed and the healthcare staff are just worn down to a nub. He's Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. I wanted to get back to uh, part of the discussion we were having with Nolan Finley from the Detroit News earlier in the hour. And that's uh, the comments that Trump attorney Sidney Powell had over the weekend talking about um, Dominion voting systems. You know, saying the following sort of the general assertion she's making about the extent of the fraud involving Dominion Voting Systems, their platform. She's making some seismic allegations 
that I want to address here, Sidney Powell on Maria Bartiromo yesterday. Because we're fixing to overturn the results of the election in multiple states, President Trump won by not just hundreds of thousands of votes, but by millions of votes that were shifted by this software that was designed expressly for that purpose. We have sworn witness testimony of why the software was designed. It was designed to rig elections. He was fully briefed on it. He saw it happen in other countries. It was exported internationally for profit by the people that are behind Smartmatic and Dominion. Well, at some point, and President Trump has said over the weekend, a couple of weeks away from uh, culling the evidence and gathering it together to present it both for court of law as well as the court of public opinion. And by the way, they are on two tracks here. They need to present their case publicly and bring people along as they're pulling together evidence. You're going to have to prove up. If you keep talking about evidence that you never present, you're going to start sounding like Adam Schiff. And again, not just courts of law. And not just uh, suggesting still working on and presenting evidence, trying to buy time. You know, you're on a mid-December clock. So those are big statements she's making. And I'm not suggesting that she can't back them up. I'm just suggesting she needs to in both venues. I did have this conversation with a friend of mine who is in IT, the high level software, Internet security, information technology security. And uh, this is somebody who like has you know big clients that are include web developers that include internet providers here's what uh, he said about dominion voting systems just by reading the manuals i've been reading the dominion manuals which can be downloaded from state websites the entire setup is a complete joke i read the two main product manual documents a quick read shows exceptionally low security and data integrity quick analysis admins can choose to print or not print batches of ballot final reports in other words print batches from district a but not print from District B. Admins can delete scan data with ease. It appears that ballots with so-called problems can be looked at individually and deleted without record, which he says equals crazy from a security perspective. There appears to be no chain of custody protecting the scan data along the way. There appears to be no checksum of data before or after verifying each scan's integrity and protecting against manipulation. The operating system is just an exposed Windows box. I don't know if it's encrypted or not, but that means it's pretty easy to manipulate. This is the craziest part, he writes. The final report appears to be just selected and copied to notepad and printed. This is insane. If this is all there is, I might trust the system to handle a knitting club election, but not an election in the United States. There has to be something more to this. Dominion, as it stands, is not even remotely up to the challenge, again, of the sort of information technology security that should be attendant to a platform that is processing election results. So there's certainly evidence that uh, if Dominion lives down to the review of this information technology expert that Sidney Powell may have, what she claims that she has and is putting together. This is Dan Proctor. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And we're still uh, doing postmortem on the uh, election that came and went, including, by the way, the uh, number of House Republican pickups 
continues to grow. House Republicans are within shouting distance of an actual takeover of the House, which was thought impossible. Very, very remote chance that Republicans could pick up the House in 2020, particularly if President Trump were to lose the election. No chance. And yet we went from plus five on election night to tracking to plus nine, plus 11, plus 12, plus 13, maybe even with some races that are still yet to be called. But the bottom line is uh, a surprising performance by House Republicans, given the context of what happened at the national level. But it's still interesting to see sort of what's happening as the parties continue to realign, I think one would argue. The uh, racial gap narrowing because Trump improved his percent of the vote among both black Americans and Latino Americans. But as uh, Chris Arnotti writes, the education gap widening. Uh, We're pleased now to be joined again by Chris Arnotti. He's a writer and uh, photographer, photojournalist, really, he's turned into, covering addiction and poverty in America. He's the author of a book we've spoken about before with him, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, that I encourage you to check out, and as well as following him on Twitter, A-R-N-A-D-E, Chris Arnotti. It's a really interesting work that he's done through his travels in back row America, as he calls it. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, drill down on this uh, piece that you wrote about the education gap widening between uh, Democrats and Republicans as manifest by the presidential results thus far. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, Democrats are right to celebrate having probably won the presidency pretty cleanly, as it were. But the details should really worry them. As you spoke in your lead in here, I mean, the House went against them. But the details of how Biden won, and he, he barely won, should be really concerning to the Democrats because they lost a lot of places that were traditionally, quote, their base. The most jaw-dropping change was along the Rio Grande border in Texas, which are mm-hmm. you know, largely Mexican-American communities, very poor. One county that shifted 50%. Now, Trump didn't win it, but he almost did. And given the fact that Hillary Clinton had won it 80 percent to 20 percent and then Biden barely won it this time, it shows you that's all across the country. You can look at a lot of places that once were thought as places where Democrats could count on strong turnout amongst more urban black communities, more rural black communities, and then, of course, Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And, well, it just didn't happen. They did vote largely for Biden, but in numbers that should really worry them because there was a big swing towards Trump that really stands on head a lot of what we've been told over the last four years, how the voters are racist, and that's why they support him. And yet you have a swell of support amongst Latinos, and it's been more blacks voting for him than did last time. I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to add something to what you're saying, it is remarkable that Biden actually underperformed Hillary Clinton in every major metropolitan area around the country, except Milwaukee, Detroit, Michigan, Atlanta, Georgia, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, nonetheless, taking the ballots as cast, underperformed Hillary, except in every major metro area except those four. Biden actually, in your local area, Lake County, which is where Gary, Indiana is, that voted more Republican this time than it has in a long time. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of changes going on here that show that. What what is consistent, though, is the people who switched to Trump from last time, the Latinos and a few African-Americans, are are like what I wrote my book about. They're people with not a lot of education. I think the problem is we have too much education in this country, so I prefer hanging out with people who don't have a lot of education, you know, and I think they have a lot, in, in aggregate, have a lot more sense sometimes than the faculty of a department, university. So I think what you're seeing here is this kind of, one of the things that Democrats have always been able to say, like, you know, we're the party of the working class, and that might have been true 30 years, 40 years ago, but it's not true anymore. 
are, they're becoming more and more in the way they talk to people and the way they think, the way people see politics. They don't see politics as a bunch of policies. They see politics as sport on TV. And the way the Democrats kind of come off more and more is, is they really only care about their college professor base, not the steel workers, not the um, people who work in um, retail. And so there's this real sense that the Democratic Party has really lost touch with what it once was, which, you know, I think you could have said back in Jimmy Carter period in there that there really was a sense that it was a party of the working class. It's becoming a party of the educated class, not the party of the working class. How did you react to the um, record voter turnout this year? I liken it to like a Super Bowl, right? The presidential election like a Super Bowl. People who don't generally pay attention to football still tune in on the Super Bowl. And this one is a really exciting Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on. There is clear choice here. And I think a lot of people were motivated to come out. But I'm a Democrat, actually, in, in, in where I come from. But I think there's been this idea that Democrats have had. The higher the turnout, the better it is for their party. And that's not necessarily true when you look at the numbers here. I think it's one thing that there was a high, lot of turnout, but a lot of the turnout was in places that helped Republicans. I think one of the things that going forward, the path I think is pretty clear. It was Trump motivated a lot of people to turn out who wouldn't have turned out otherwise. And he brought in a lot of people, I think, that in the past might not have felt comfortable in the GOP, like Mexican-Americans. You know, one of the things I will say to my conservative friends is, you can go down to Hammond and see it. I think there are a lot of Mexican-Americans are a good fit for the Republican Party and a lot of the cultural issues with faith, family, and flag. And they're not, not embarrassed to be proud of America and to be American. You know, a lot of them work very hard to get citizenship, and they're very proud to be here. I think that's one thing you're seeing in the numbers is the Mexican-Americans in particular who work in things like the oil and gas industry, who work in manufacturing, I think it can very much easily become a part of the Republican Party if the Republican Party wants them. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I think one of the things you're seeing, I mean, certainly being advocated by conservatives like me, is switch out this effort to get hate has no home here overeducated seven sisters grads in the suburbs and go for Mexican-American immigrants or second generation, third generation, I don't really care. But yes, exactly. Switch out working people for the idle sophists in the suburbs. You know, one of the things I wrote in my piece is, you know, I think a lot of pundits and a lot of political operatives just get it wrong when they don't recognize, you know, they, they look at some of the things Trump did, especially the journalists, and they, they made fun of it, like, you know, the McDonald's spread, um, or, and then hugging the flag, you know, at the CPAC meeting, you know. One of the things that so frustrates me in, in, the, in the discourse out there is this idea that, you know, America, America is awful, America is awful, it sucks. Why, why, do so many, why do you think so many people want to come here? They love America. You know, you go into these Mexican-American communities, you go into these new American communities, especially ones who've been here a few generations, and they love America. They're very proud to be here. And so when they see, the, you know, when they see reporters or, or pundits on TV, you know, talking about how bad America is, that just, that just, that turns them off in a big way. And when they see the Republicans, you know, um, embrace literally embrace the flag like Trump did. You know that that kind of cheesiness that is seen by many people as cheesy to them isn't cheesy at all. You know, I mean that's what they. You know, they're they're really happy to be here, right? yeah. Because you know they they've escaped a lot of poverty and violence to get here, and you right. know, and so. Well, they haven't. They haven't. They haven't suffered the oppression that you know my fellow Northwestern grads have suffered. So you know that's why they still love America. You know, my, one of the things I try to get across in my book that very frustrates me about the political um, community these days is they don't understand the people they advocate for. You know, they think they understand them. They read about them in a book. But they don't. I mean, they, they don't really. You know, they don't. They don't. They live separate from them. Well, it, here's <laughs> the th here's the thing, and it gets interesting to get your perspective as a Democrat. And I'm not calling you a socialist. I'm calling you a Democrat. But this is sort of underlying idea of the left that. Uh, 
Black Lives Matter, these groups, um, we are, uh, you know, basically the vanguard class ushering in a proletariat revolution to transform America for you. And uh, as often happens with these uh, uh, these revolutions that advertise as the proletariat, the proletariat's getting left behind. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you look at just the language being used by, by, by the Democratic Party. Now, I will, I will say Biden did a much better job than of all the Democrat candidates. He was the best in navigating this because he, I think – I think he is much less that than the party apparatus around him. Mm-hmm. So I think any any other candidate would have lost to Trump. So I think the Democrats did a good job in putting Biden up there because he's 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 had to you know he's been elected <laughs> for what forty years and, and and had to go out and deal with with voters. But this idea, you know, that I think where where the GOP um, missed an opportunity was. You know, pivoting towards things at the end that I think they had focused on the um, on the you know the defund the police calls and things like that. I think they would have been in a better situation because nobody in these working class communities wants to defund the police. They, they would like different types of policing. That's true. That's no thing. But they don't want to defund the police. Right. You, know, you you go into Gary, Indiana. You ask people if they want to. They're going to they're going to throw you out. <laughs> right. You know. You you go into. You go into urban parts of Milwaukee where the crime is bad and where they've dealt for 30 years with they've overcome the 90s and the 80s when crime was even worse. They do not want to defund the police. Chris Arnotti, writer and photographer covering addiction and poverty in America, author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, thanks again for joining us. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show sort of uh, dovetailing nicely with our discussion uh, before the break with chris arnotti about quote-unquote back row americans what's happening in america's big cities the uh, personal safety of people that uh, don't have the means to move to ritzy enclaves. The sound of gunfire has become so familiar across North Minneapolis that Kathy Spann worries she has grown numb to it. Washington Post reporting. Spann, a longtime community activist who works for the Jordan Area Community Council, cannot recall another time when things were this bad, not even when the city was branded Murderapolis during a spike in violence in the mid-90s. Homicides in Minneapolis are up 50 percent, with nearly 75 people killed across the city so far this year. More than 500 people have been shot, the highest number in more than a decade and twice as many as last year. And there have been more than 4,600 violent crimes, which is a five year high. Oh, and um, by the way, what's happening to the Minneapolis Police Department that uh, the elected officials, civilian authorities want to defund in Ilhan Omar world? The police chief there, Madaria Arredondo, told uh, the police commission, the, the Minneapolis Charter Commission, studying the police staffing issue. The department has about 735 sworn officers down from the city's budgeted 888, of which about 500 are on patrol. He warned that dropping below 500 officers on the streets would jeopardize the city's crime response and that they're trying to develop contingency plans that would include triaging calls for help 
something he said he believes will erode public trust even further. It's creating a police department I did not want to have that's one-dimensional, Arredondo said. Our core focus is patrols and investigations. And so last week, the city council voted to allocate 500 grand for the police department to temporarily hire officers from neighboring law enforcement agencies to help patrol the city until the end of the year. After the push previously from the same people was to defund it. Remarkable. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Lehman, adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and staff writer with the Washington Free Beacon. Charles, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, so you wrote in City Journal about uh, this very issue that Minneapolis provides a case study in, which is uh, cops are quitting and uh, uh, local officials are now having to deal with the real world problems associated with their leftist rhetoric. Yeah, um, and you know, I it's it's not a problem isolated to Minneapolis. Uh, I looked at the 50 major cities in the United States, and roughly half of them have either seen a wave of police retirements and uh, resignations, or they've seen their chief retire. In many cases, it's both, um, and that's you know just in the big cities. There are lots of small cities. Um, Norman, Oklahoma, has seen like half its police force retire. Uh, Colwyn, Pennsylvania, Knightsbridge, Indiana. Um, these are tiny towns. They only got three or four cops to begin with. And so if half the force leaves, you really don't have anybody to do the enforcing. Um, and then at scale, you know, uh, the Major City Chiefs Association, which represents big city chiefs, told the Wall Street Journal that I think 18 out of 69 chiefs have retired this year. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really all, I think, signs that point to a great flight away from policing. Um, at the upper echelons, but also just on the beat. Uh, people are walking away from the job. And when uh, uh, people are walking away from policing, other people are walking away from being residents of those cities where the police are walking away from policing. Joe Lonsdale, writing in the Wall Street Journal, Joe Lonsdale, who is a uh, partner of Peter Thiel, I mean, talking about wildly successful venture capitalist, uh, writing about California, love it and leave it. I love California, but I had to leave. Uh, He among the reasons he cited public safety, ill-conceived criminal justice reforms and radical district attorneys are taking a toll on urban life. Three of my colleagues wives have been harassed and chased by derelicts in San Francisco streets, which are little with needles and human waste. My wife is afraid to walk around the city with our young daughters. Police often don't even respond to harassment and property crime, which has surged. San Francisco's property crime rate is now the nation's highest. And Joe Lonsdale can afford to leave. And that's what he's doing. He's going to Texas. Yeah, and you know, I think I think there's a there's a big fight over what we talk about as quality of life policing or quality of life in, uh, enforcement, where it's not you know the guys are out there shooting each other in the street, but the guy who harasses women on the street or, as you say, leaves his needles all over the all over the sidewalk. Um, and I think there's a big push on the progressive left to say, well, that's not the sort of thing the cops should deal with. But it seems certainly like in the places where prosecutors start prosecuting and cops have stopped enforcing, uh, the alternatives are not sweeping in. They are not. Uh, addressing the issue. Rather, when you tell people it's socially permissible to engage in this kind of antisocial behavior, they'll do it. Um, and that makes life substantially worse for everyone else who's lived in the city, which, as the story you told illustrates, drains the tax base, reduces the city's power to enforce its own norms and standards further, and it's sort of a vicious cycle. It seems to me that there's been a lot of focus on defund the police and the implications of that policy and not nearly enough on prosecute, you know, police that we don't want them to police on prosecutors who choose not to prosecute and the implications on that side of the justice system for quality of life. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, that's a, that's an under-discussed story relative to its impact. Many people on both sides of the debate agree that the local district attorney has substantial uh, impact on the shape of the criminal justice system. There's been an effort within progressive circles, uh, broadly funded by George Soros, among others, uh, to elect so-called progressive prosecutors to a number of different positions. Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, um, just a bunch of a, a bunch of folks who have won DA races over the past several years, promising to reduce enforcement. Um, and you know, in places like San Francisco, you see the effect. Uh, in places like New York City, where there are uh, progressive prosecutors in several of the five boroughs, you see the effect um, of you know an unwillingness to go after petty crime, uh, and that has a real harm to people who want to be able to live life unmolested by even these small acts of uh, violence. And, and and it seems to me that you're going to have a problem, you know, Minneapolis uh, trying to recruit to officers from neighboring communities. You're going to have a problem even if you pay a premium just because of the exposure uh, until it seems to me police believe the civilian political authorities have their back for legitimate policing. You know, why would I want to uh, expose myself to something that is c- career ending, that may be freedom ending if I uh, if I make the wrong call even uh, or I'm judged to have made the wrong call? Right. In my in my city journal piece, uh, I cite an LA Times interview with a guy who left the SFPD, I think, uh, who went to another uh, town in California, and he said, "Look, I like working in a place where people actually like me." Um, he felt in San Francisco, everyone from the homeless people to the homeowners were actively hostile to him, and so you know you can you can offset that a little bit, but at the end of the day, if you make the job worse, then the people who do the job are you're going to lose the high quality people who have the best option to substitute into another career to go somewhere else. And you're going to be left with, for lack of a better word, the dregs. You're left with the less well-performing officers who have nowhere else to go. And are, by the way, the guys who are more likely to engage in misconduct, more likely to engage in use of force and less capable as, as officers. And that's uh, going to reinforce the problem. Uh, I, there's no question. And I, I don't know, you know, how you reverse this trend, you know, uh, quickly, quickly enough to address the public safety concerns that have metastasized over the last, uh, well, six months. It doesn't seem like there's an obvious way. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the short run answer is, look, you have to spend. Um, there are there are plausible reforms that you can subject police departments to, but if you want to do that, you have to keep policing an attractive position, and the way to do that is to fund the police, for lack of a better phrase. you got to be willing to spend money on increasing the quality of your civil service. Uh, that's hard, but it's something that cities need to be willing to invest in if they want everything else to run smoothly. Charles Lehman, adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and staff writer with the Washington Free Beacon. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, Federalist Federalist.com, tweeted out yesterday... A source familiar with Durham's ongoing investigation of the bogus Russian collusion operation tells Federalist, quote, Durham isn't doing anything, dropping his investigations. He's worried about blowback from Biden. What an absolute disgrace, unquote. Sean Davis, pretty reliable source, a Federalist 
pretty reliable source too. It does a pretty good job from my experience in sourcing the information they report and comment upon. And uh, also somebody who's been following the Russian collusion, the bogus Russian collusion operation, as he calls it, uh, since the outset. Uh, what does that mean if that's true? I mean, I'm serious. What, what hope is there for our republic if a permanent political ruling class operating above the law persists? For more on that and perhaps an answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined again by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano. Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for being with us. Hey, good to be with you. So what hope, Jim? What hope? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. It's, it's kind of like listening to a bunch of reports with a, a blindfold on. I mean, Sean's great. I, I get that. But, I mean... The reality is, is we don't know what Durham is doing. We don't have, you know, he's never publicly stated what he's going to do. We don't know the veracity of what he did. So understand, it, but but what it's if it's all just conjecture at this? Look, so we've seen what this if it before. Is true? Our, what if it is? Yeah, true? I mean, we no, we we've seen this before in our democracy. Um, for example, go back to Counter Intel Pro, which was a a, a massive surveillance program that uh, was run by the FBI in the in the 60s, going after. Um, um, civil rights and anti-war activists, and there are a number of abuses there. Um, this is okay. This is what's really important here, because yeah, you can get elected into political power, and you can use that power in an abusive way, and you can use that power to cover up what you're doing. But the genius and the strength of the American system is that we have three independent branches of government that can check and balance each other. So, for example, congr the congressional inquiries into abuses by the FBI was fundamental to just keeping that thing from being s swept under the rug. So here's the, the real danger that I worry about is, you know, people can try this stuff all they want, but when you start talking about packing the Supreme Court, adding states so you have a, you know, a, a permanent majority in the Congress, um, and, and these other activities, which essentially consolidate power in the executive branch and in, in that is that's what we ought all ought to be really really worried about that's the really big picture i mean i i take your point that uh fbi abuses have happened uh, in in the past um and uh, and government has been turned on the citizenry in the past uh despicably so whether it's uh, during the civil rights era as you as you point out the uh, war protesters, or more recently in the previous administration, uh, the IRS targeting people based on their political and religious beliefs. It seems to me, though, you know, the repetition and the institutionalization and the uh, the lack of any reckoning for those in power over and over and over again has a cumulative effect. So it's one thing to say we've had these problems before. It's another thing to say now what we've done is we decry those problems, or at least half of us do, and then nobody's held to account and that permanent political class persists on. At some point, there is that breaking point. Well, I mean, so there's two concerns. One, you know, one is the one that I just talked about, which is essentially institutionalizing these practices. And the other one is, is, is essentially people thinking that, well, if we can get away with it, we'll just keep doing it. Yes. And so, so for example, I mean, the, the system was clearly weaponized against Michael Flynn. Now, maybe not in a way where anybody actually, you know, committed a crime by the letter of the law, but there, but it's indisputable that that the uh, going after Flynn was a political attack, 
And it's indisputable that dragging out the, the Russia probe was a political attack. And it's indisputable that the indictment of the president was a political. These are all political weapons that were done. And, and so, but, and you get away with that because if you haven't, you know, and we can debate whether somebody actually broke a crime with that, but if you can't prove that somebody broke a crime and you, you know, and you feel like you're the Teflon Don, then the tendency is to want to go back and do that again. And again, when you put the same people back in who ran that game plan, do you really expect them to do any difference? And the answer is we don't, which is why an independent judiciary uh, and an independent uh, Senate is going to be fundamentally crucial if we're ever going to stop this, you know, what we've seen. When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano of the Heritage Foundation, I want to get his assessment of Sidney Powell's call for the dismissal of FBI Director Ray and CIA Director Haspel uh, over their failure to um, act in furtherance of protecting the integrity of elections around the country. We'll uh, start there when we return with Lieutenant Colonel Jim. Oh, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation, and uh, Jim. I wanted to get your reaction to uh, what Sidney Powell, General Flynn's attorney, since you brought up General Flynn, and of course part of uh, the Trump campaign legal team, uh, suggested that both Gina Haspel and Christopher Ray be fired immediately, uh, and uh, not in the context of the Russian collusion, or at least that wasn't her focus, but rather right. their uh, failure to address complaints about the quality of the security with respect to election systems like those provided by Dominion, uh, uh, despite the complaints from both sides over the years about uh, expressing concerns about uh, election integrity. Uh, What's your reaction to what she had to say? Well, I, you know, I want to wait to see how the, the, the stuff, uh, this stuff plays out in the court. I mean, obviously she's a a lawyer and she has a, uh, a side to argue and and that's what she's going to argue. You know, we need to see how this plays out. I think, look, I mean, I think there's two, there's a lot of things going on here. First of all, I, there's, I guess, a recount in Georgia. Uh, is it Arizona? Also? Wisconsin. I mean, you know, Wisconsin. All right. So there, there are, well, at least a couple of states that are having recounts. We need to see how that plays out. Um, and there are legal challenges and, and we need to, to see how those play out. I'm going to wait and, and, uh, and see that. And look, I think, you know, people use a lot of different words, but I think there's, it is perfectly legitimate if a candidate for an office, any office, feels the irregularities for whatever reason or whatever purpose or function or motivation were conducted, which affected the outcome of the election. They have a legal recourse through both you know the states and the federal to challenge that and de- trying to deny them that or, or disparage that before they've had a chance to have their day in court. I, I think that's, that's, that is an abuse of... of our notion of, of um, equality under the law and, and a system of ordered liberty. Uh, just going back to the um, this permanent ruling class that um, bothers me, uh, the uh, response last week from 16 assistant U.S. attorneys to Attorney General Barr's order to probe any legitimate claims of voter fraud in their states, that uh, letter was sent on Monday. This response from 16 AUSAs was sent back on Friday. <laughs> saying there's no evidence of election fraud. 
uh, a four-day exhaustive search by these AUSAs. I assume it wasn't the uh, United States attorneys because they didn't want to be fired on the spot. But um, the, the headline, top prosecutors say there's no evidence of election fraud. It's interesting. Uh, Attorney General Barr, despite all the qualifications in the letter about the prospect that it would overturn the election, about the need to have a high bar to open investigations, but to take a look because of the allegations swirling to enhance the legitimacy of whatever the outcome is among the American public, because that's important. That was received as that's political. This response from a handful of AUSAs is received as not political, number one, and number two, the definitive word on the topic. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I can't evaluate the response because I haven't seen it, but I, I would agree with you. I thought Barr's order was designed to reinforce the integrity of the American electoral system. It wasn't designed to undermine it. And But look, this is something you know that we have seen unbroken now for years is you have an adversarial press which doesn't accurately report the news. Um, the, you know, we had a march on Saturday, and 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 uh, the the report was white supremacists, far right extremists, and Trump supporters march in Washington D.C. Look, I, I was out Saturday. I walked around. I saw tens of thousands of people. Um, when did you become like, When did you become a white supremacist? Well, I was I wasn't even marching with anybody. I was just we, we were we were going to buy we were going to the uh, drugstore, but you know I mean you know we we were we were walking around downtown and and there were you know you know there were Spanish people and people from Latin America and Asian people and you know uh, you know looked like farmers and stuff but you know and a lot of people carrying Trump flags but but I, I, there may have been white supremacists in the crowd I don't know that but but to essentially lead with that statement leaving the impression that this was tens of thousands of white supremacists mar- watching. Mar- Washington D.C. What do you expect? This, I want to go back to the prosecutor thing because this is a real issue. There, one of my colleagues in the Heritage Foundation, um, Kelly Simpson and Zach Smith, have been writing about this. Is this notion of rogue prosecutors, where you have, George Soros and organized groups on the left have really broken the code on this about getting n- not the federally appointed prosecutors, but the elected prosecutors, getting in those races, getting people elected. And then having them in place not to not to oversee the law, but essentially to put a polit- push a political agenda. So we've seen this, for example, in Portland and Baltimore and other cities where they just don't prosecute the crimes that they don't that they don't think are politically correct. It's uh, it's a it's a real real danger. It's a real thing. Rogue prosecutors. It's a real real thing. And and the media doesn't help because essentially what they're doing is just picking sides. So you have a, a prosecutor gives a political statement and they just characterize that as objective and then a prosecutor gives an objective statement and they prosecute they they describe that as political yeah that's about right that's about right uh i wanted to get your take on uh, this axios report that uh, part of trump's goal if he is to exit on january 20th is to make it politically untenable for the biden administration to change course on china uh and to to act more aggressively to pursue hardline policies against china uh as China acts aggressively from India to Hong Kong to Taiwan. And uh, Joe Biden's response so far has been to say that we'll rejoin the World Health Organization. If that is true, are there there specific things you think Trump can or should do to try to box a Biden administration in on China? Well, I think it's it's very, very difficult to tie the hands of a a future president, particularly Mm -hmm. on an issue as big as China. And and I I mean, I've been analyzing, you know, both sides. It's difficult, you know, because you listen to campaign rhetoric and it's meaningless. I mean, you know, 
Trump, you knew what you were going to get. This, you knew what you would get in the second term because he, it would be this, what he did in the first term. Um, you have, you can look, go back and look at the Obama record, but it's a different world than it was four years ago. Um, so the, I, I don't know if that's a perfect exemplar, but you know, we would, would under Biden, you would have the same team coming back who effectively tragically failed to deal with China for four years. Um, on the campaign trail, you have a bunch of blah, blah, which really doesn't interpret as anything. So I, I find it very difficult to kind of divine exactly what a, a Biden policy would look like. But, you know, look, we've already seen countries starting to hedge. We have a number of countries just sign up for a free trade agreement with China, which is nuts because it's the one country in the world that doesn't agree in free trade. Um, so you already see, you know, signs that people think, well, if it is a Biden team, you know, we need to start hedging because we're not sure we can trust the United States. That's incredibly unhelpful. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Thanks, buddy. Have a good week. Welcome back to the show. Returning to COVID as it pertains to the holidays, Jake Tapper and others already canceling Christmas. We haven't even gotten to canceling Thanksgiving yet, although certainly the uh, you're going to kill grandma, Jay Inslee type of demagoguery is back in full frontal effect. Uh, Jared Polis, the governor of California, not quarantining before the holidays is like, quote, bringing a loaded pistol for grandma's head. That's measured. So what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? Uh, Not that uh, we're in the mood to uh, put a lot of faith in polling, but an interesting survey out of Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. Forty percent of U.S. residents say they plan to gather in groups of 10 or more this holiday season. Nearly a third of respondents said they would not require friends or family to wear masks at Thanksgiving. Twenty five percent said they would not practice social distancing, according to the poll. Hmm. And uh, of course, this is um, uh, very concerning to the experts at uh, Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. When you're gathered together around the table, engaged in conversation, sitting less than six feet apart with your mask down, even in a small group, that's when the spread of the virus can really happen. Well, then why did we ever open restaurants? What is the difference between sitting at a table in one's home and sitting at a table inside a restaurant where you're not six feet apart, where you as soon as you sit down, you can take your mask off because COVID only attacks when you're standing up. It doesn't attack when you're sitting down, even if they're inches apart. Never quite understood the science behind that. All of these wonderful men and women of science and data lording over America's big cities and many of America's big states. And the capriciousness of these protocols that never made any sense, which is why people who are leveling with you, like you've heard on this show, told you we weren't going to stop the spread. You don't eliminate the virus. You don't lock down the virus to borrow Joe Bidenism from the final debate. You try to achieve some level of herd immunity through a combination of what? People getting infected and surviving at a 99.98% percent clip uh, under the age of 50, 95 percent almost over the age of 70, and of course, a vaccine. And so we're all rooting for the vaccines to come online and people to get inoculated and to get immunized. Uh, But 
it goes back to this other binary. We either learn to live with the virus or we pretend, and that's all we're doing, that uh, putting cloth over your mouth and nose will make COVID disappear from the planet. It's ridiculous. And that the continue the sacrifices should continue unabated. And as, as long as they're sold to us a couple weeks at a time, oh, it's just two weeks to flatten the curve. Right now, it's, oh, it's just four to six weeks to lock down to slow the spread. Then it's fine. The same people who've been wrong about so many things, who've had us on this COVID-19 lockdown merry-go-round for eight months, but again, because of their good intentions and their expert status, we are to blithely abide their diktats. No, I don't think so. Now, I'll still be having my Thanksgiving Day a traditional hungry man dinner with my dog. So I will inadvertently be abiding their protocols. But for others, like the 40 percent to say who say they plan to gather in groups of 10 or more people to enjoy family and friends during the holidays, there's nothing wrong with that. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft Show, as well as at Dan Proft. Uh, Ralph Warnock answers a question posed by Stephen Hayward over at PowerlineBlog.com. Can Democrats give up identity politics and white guilt? Ralph Warnock, who is uh, running for Senate in the state of Georgia, one of those runoff elections against Kelly Loeffler, uh, his answer is a definitive no, I think it's safe to say. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness on, on full display this season. How is it that you can insult everybody, all Muslims, something other than children of God, call Mexicans murderers and rapists, insult the disabled. How is it you can insult everybody, but then one weekend somebody discovers in the recording that you insult those whose daughters and wives look like those who have been supporting you, and then all of a sudden we can't take it anymore. Repent for the worship of whiteness. Repent for the worship of whiteness. That doesn't sound like somebody ready to give up identitarian politics. Also, uh, from Ralph Warnock's, uh, Raphael Warf- Warnock's uh, uh, hit parade, this from David Harsani over at National Review, uh, Warnock uh, in a 2018 sermon, we need a two-state solution where all of God's children can live together. We saw the government of Israel shoot down unarmed Palestinian sisters and brothers like birds of prey. It is wrong to shoot down God's, children's like they, God's children like they don't matter at all. Harsani asks, what else to call claiming that Jewish, the Jewish state goes around picking off God's children as if they don't matter at all, to use Warnock's words verbatim? Right. I, normally that would be called anti-Semitism, but I guess to identitarians that is acceptable. Doesn't sound like Ralph Warnock wants to learn the lessons of the 2020 election, even with Joe Biden potentially in the White House. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Stephen Hayward, resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, a lecturer at Berkeley Law and blogger at PowerlineBlog.com. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Good to have you here, I should say. And um, uh, so, yeah, I know uh, you reference uh, Mark Lilla, who's sort of part of the 
the uh, center left uh, awakening, uh, along with uh, Jonathan Haidt, to to uh, uh, reintroduce the idea of academic freedom and something resembling intellectual sanity on college campus. It's not going great. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and and Ralph Raphael Warnock, I don't think, is going to help them very much. No, I don't think so. I mean, look, the, the problem for Democrats is uh, who do they listen to? Their their bubble consists of the New York Times, which has gone hard to the left and just be, being really liberal. And, of course, universities, you know, Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, that are also pretty hard left these days. And so, you know, that's who your average Democratic politician thinks they have to follow and spoke and, you know, sign up with all this wokeness. And turns out a lot of Democratic voters are not down with that. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned Mark Lillo, who I know a little bit. And he's a good, loyal, liberal Democrat. And after Trump won four years ago, he wrote in the New York Times, you know, we really ought to give up this identity politics stuff. And he had his faculty colleagues at Columbia call him a white supremacist. <laughs> and one law professor, feminist law professor, said he's David Duke in academic robes. So you can see how well this is going. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fairly aggressive for uh, daring to suggest that uh, we should give up identitarian politics. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, though, because I guess you can understand why the left would say, well, this is the path we must go down because the New York Times sponsored the 1619 Project. The Pulitzer Foundation is sponsoring the New York, the uh, 1619 Project or rewriting of American history in our K through 12 K through 12 school systems. So, I mean, this is where the zeitgeist is, and I just want to be part of the in crowd. Yeah, I think that's right. And But, I mean, part of what this was based on was a calculation that goes back more than 20 years now among Democratic strategists that their way to a majority was through the Rainbow Coalition, you know, minorities, women, uh, college-educated professionals. Um, and some of that has worked. You know, college-educated professionals, especially on the coast, have swung pretty hard the Democratic Party. But... The shocker of this election, and it's really freaking out the left, is that Donald Trump in, and Republicans generally increased their share of the non-white vote by quite a lot. Uh, Trump's share of the black vote went up, uh, you know, eight, ten percent, and uh, uh, and among Hispanics, his support went up a lot. And not just in South Florida, where there are a lot of Cubans, or in Texas. Turns out that Trump's share of the Hispanic vote went up everywhere, even in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and. So the point is, is that the minorities are not buying the identitarian politics an awful lot of them. I think they want to be treated as Americans. And, you know, the identitarians on the left are resisting this and stamping their feet. And I think they're going to double down on this. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear uh, over at the ACLU, um, Chase Strangio, the ACLU's deputy director for transgender justice, by apparently there's quite a bureaucracy at the ACLU in that department, uh, it's called uh, Abigail Schreier's book about uh, transgenderism, uh, which is a big part of identitarian politics, too. It's not just race. Uh, a yeah. dangerous polemic with the goal of making people not trans. And um, uh, we have to fight these ideas which are leading to the criminalization of trans life. Stopping the circulation of this book and the ideas is 100 percent a hill I will die on, says a. a staffer at the American Civil Liberties Union, the, the great uh, vanguard of First Amendment freedoms. <laughs> you know, I can remember, I'm old enough now to remember when the ACLU stoutly defended the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. That was the late 70s, not far from where you are, um, in, in a town that had lots of Holocaust survivors living there. I mean, the Nazis picked it, that location to be as offensive as possible, and the ACLU defended their right on First Amendment free speech grounds and won at the Supreme Court. Uh, and so now, uh, you know, 
I mean, the ACLU, I think you just take civil liberties out of their name, at least when it comes to the First Amendment, which is always one of their core issues. Um, and this has been a long time in coming. This isn't the first instance of the ACLU abandoning its longtime uh, stalwart defense of First Amendment absolutism. So now, you know, they pretty clearly signed up with the woke left, too, and say goodbye to uh, what was once a pretty storied civil liberties organization. Uh, I want to uh, uh, just uh, play this clip from uh, Justice Samuel Alito at uh, this talk he gave last week at the Federal Society's Lawyers Convention uh, about uh, free speech rights. And uh, the fact that he really focuses in on this uh, says a lot about how concerned he is about the uh, the undue restriction of people's constitutional free speech rights and where that might lead. Listen to Justice Alito. You can't say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Until very recently, that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. That this would happen after our decision in Obergefell should not have come as a surprise. Yes, the opinion of the court included words meant to calm the fears of those who cling to traditional views on marriage. But I could see, and so did the other justices in dissent, where the decision would lead. I wrote the following. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. That is just what is coming to pass. That's what's coming to pass with respect to marriage redefinition after Obergefell, as he said, but also on a range of topics, not just limited to identitarian politics, limited to COVID policy uh, or uh, applied to COVID policy, applied to climate change discussions and the like. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, right. I mean, uh, what's clearly going on from the left now from positions of power, not just in government, but also in corporate America and certainly in the media is your it's now demanded that you conform to their very narrow outlook on the world. So. And what that means is, is that the freedom of religion is no longer respected by the American Civil Liberties Union or anybody else. Uh, look, uh, faithful Christians, faithful Jews, faithful Muslims all think um, uh, marriage is a traditional institution between a man and a woman. Uh, that doesn't mean they're intolerant of gays who marry. That's, that's now legal, but it means that that's their belief in their religious institutions. And moreover, this is still a live issue in the courts, of course. The, um, the desire of the Obama administration, which now they bring this back, uh, to require that religious organizations offer abortion services as part of their health insurance plans. Um, and, you know, that's just compulsion uh, to, and, and uh, to tell people that their, their rights of conscience no longer count as rights anymore. And well, well, that's, that's yeah, a larger part of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the ongoing uh, yeah, jihad against the Little Sisters of the Poor, right? But, but, but you don't need to be religious to say, uh, you know, I believe in. Uh, uh, the, the notion of a biological sex. You don't need to be religious to say, I don't want right. to ally with a Marxist organization like Black Lives Matter. But those positions are, are verboten, even if they're not coming from a religious perspective in so many quarters in, in our society. Yeah, that's right. You only need to be acquainted with biology to believe that there are real distinct sexes. Correct, um, yes. But it used to be that, you know, most liberals, I think, used to respect religious liberty and the particularity of religious communities. And now they don't. Uh, and that's a very ominous thing for the country. He is Stephen Hayward, resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, lecturer at Berkeley Law, and blogger at powerlineblog.com. Stephen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. It was the heat of the moment Telling me what my heart meant The heat of the moment
seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Continuing with election postmortem, how the D.C. press corps do and all of their uh, outposts. And you'll hear from all of their outposts momentarily, not just with the election coverage, but with the post-election election coverage, if you will. Uh, this is uh, Making the Rounds, this mashup of network affiliate news readers from all the major broadcasting companies sharing both a teleprompter, apparently, and a single brainwave. We're extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS 4 News produces. But we are concerned about several trending news stories plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. Network affiliate anchors like those uh, mouth-breathing newsreaders in Chicago. And I'm old enough to remember way back when, earlier in the year, when these same automatons dutifully ridiculed Sinclair Broadcast Group anchors for the crime of reciting the company's value proposition. (laughs) For more on this, these saviors of democracy, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Hemingway, senior writer at RealClearInvestigations.com. Mark, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So um, everybody gets the same memo. Uh, uh, it's one thing if it's CNN or if it, or MSNBC. It's another thing when it's all these network affiliate news stations across the broadcasting companies. Yeah, I think a lot of them share the same owner, of course, and he gets to uh, send out memos, I guess, on you know whatever shared news editors they have. And we focus on the DC press corps. We focus on the cable news desks. I don't really know why. What about all these network affiliates that uh, have, I guess, some credibility left with uh, people 70 and over that still watch appointment television well yeah i mean a big problem in media in general uh, is groupthink i mean obviously we talk about that a lot in terms of the national press corps but you know given both the limited resources that is being put into journalism these days and or the people that are involved that have specific political agendas the idea that it's filtering down to local tv news affiliates uh, isn't you know terribly shocking unfortunately but, you know, what we really need, obviously, is we need a whole bunch of different competing news outlets with different ideas about things going out there and reporting on different angles and, you know, you know, letting the best ideas, you know, sort of filter out of that or, or the best, you know, most revealing information come out of that. Well, and obviously that's not what we're getting. Well, that's happening online. But I guess the question is, is that enough? 
Well, obviously, if we've seen what's happening online, which is to say that you know Twitter and all these big social media companies are cracking down on you know wrong think essentially, um, you know there's a lot we don't know about coronavirus, for instance, you know, and a lot of what we've learned is because people out there were making interesting suppositions about what might be happening that you know turned out to be true, uh, and yet anything that doesn't come from you know some weird mainstream seal of approval. Uh, um, from the, the mainstream scientists on this gets censored actually actively now by Twitter, you know, which has algorithms and stuff. The moment people post stuff about coronavirus, like they're, they're you know, it gets shut down on social media. Never mind that, you know, all these people have reversed themselves. You know, Dr. Fauci has reversed himself on masks and other things like that. So, you know, obviously the quote-unquote experts are still trying to find their figure out what's what's going on with all kinds of issues, be it coronavirus or any other political issues. So the idea that there's active censorship online is something that should frighten us all as well. Well, you know, there's something, too. I just want to go back to the, the power to influence, um, because there's you know examples of this that speak to how old media still has new power, present power. And that is uh, very much like it was with this uh, survey of uh, what percentage of the population do you think is gay from a few years ago? And the median answer was 25 percent, even though it's more like 2 percent. And, of course, why was the public's median answer off by 12x? Because of the ubiquity of celebrating people who are gay and in the arts and so on and so forth and being an advocate for marriage redefinition over the years and so on and so forth. I'm not uh, taking a position on the issue. I'm just saying that this is what the this is what people thought and this is what the truth is. So with respect to covid, uh, the survey out a couple of months ago, people thought the uh, covid fatality rate was nine percent when it was hovering around two tenths of one percent. Uh, so, you know, off exponentially, why is that? Because all the way the media reports this, and this definitely includes network affiliate newscasts and the daily newspapers and the big urban centers and, and suburban areas, too, to the extent that they're left, uh, conflating all sorts of issues that make people think that this is much more deadly across the board, regardless of age, regardless of underlying medical conditions than it actually is and was. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, media hysteria can completely cloud the facts to the point where, you know, the, you know, it appears that the public is 180 degrees backward. But, you know, I decided pulling data, you decided pulling data, and that touches on another thing that yes. you know, we yes. journalists have got to think about, which is to say that the polls in 2020 were dramatically wrong, at least in terms of the election. And we spent months actually, you know, a- actively talking about them nonstop on cable news as journalists. Uh, about what the polls said about this and that. And in, there have been a number of elections in a row. The polls were off badly in 2014. They were obviously off badly in 2016. They are obviously off badly in 2020. So at what point do we stop citing these kinds of things to determine our you know, discussions about the, these sorts of things? If they're wrong about the election, they're probably also wrong about all the polls that said that you know, people wanted dramatic, drastic coronavirus lockdowns as well that were often cited. So... We've got to actually, as journalists, you know, go out there and talk to people, <laughs> you know, let people actually debate things instead of like, you know, doing some sort of terrible survey and proclaiming that these debates are over um, when they're not. Uh, the, but, you know, again, the, the 
the media is more likely to zero in on survey data or polling data that is favorable to them and talk about that nonstop and ignore the data that, that isn't. Um, never mind that this just isn't a reliable way of doing things. Well, so, well, and the, the important thing you just said is, and to discard uh, data that uh, doesn't comport with what they desire. And so this is this is purposeful, right? This is we want to create a presumption of victory because we know that helps to facilitate the victory. And so we pick a candidate in the primary like we did with Trump because we thought Hillary Clinton would beat him in the general. We pick a candidate in the general against Trump, Biden, because we needed Biden to beat Trump. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I think part of that is even, you know, we, we talk about, you know, there's, it was a high turnout election. We don't have a lot of like evidence for it, but you do have to wonder, you know, does this suppress the vote for the people that are behind, too? And you're constantly seeing polls that, you know, Trump is down, you know, 17 points in swing states in the case of Wisconsin right. a week before the election. I mean, did that depress turnout in Wisconsin when, you know, it turns out that, you know, Biden only won the state by, what, 10 or 20,000 votes? So, yeah, you do have to wonder, you know, when things are that off, you know, to what degree it is intentional or the mistakes are because these people are so clouded by their own ideology. Um, um, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. When we come back with RealClearInvestigations.com's Mark Hemingway, I want to get his assessment of the media's culpability in appeasing those who use violence to advance their political agendas. We'll be right back with Mark Hemingway after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Before the break, we were talking with Mark Hemingway of RealClearInvestigations.com about uh, the groupthink that afflicts the D.C. press corps and their regional outposts around the country. And I want to get to a piece by David Marcus and the Federalists about the uh, refusal to apply the rule of law and legal consequences to leftists who commit acts of violence. And, uh, you know, this is what we've seen as well, that that this ridicule of people who disagree with them and the stigmatization of those people and essentially the appeasement of people who commit violence against people with whom they disagree, as we saw over the weekend in D.C. with respect to Trump supporters rallying for you know him continuing to challenge the election results. Yeah, the, the, the Trump rally over the weekend is, is a great example. I mean, I wasn't at the rally proper, but I had to go into the city um, while it was going on, and I saw, certainly saw plenty of the people that were there. And from what I saw the media coverage, it's a classic example of the term of art is nut picking, which is to say, you know, right. any large group of politically oriented people, yeah, there's always going to be a few crazies, but it doesn't matter whether you're right, left, or center. If you have a large political protest, there's going to be a few crazy people there. And so, of course, the media zero in on the, you know, very tiny percentage of crazy people and make that the story in this case, rather than pointing out that the, you know, the few hundred thousand people were there, the vast, vast, vast majority were, you know, ordinary peaceful Americans who had something to say about the current political situation. Then on the other hand, you know, you have a situation here where you have groups like Antifa, uh, which 
you know, have an ideology that explicitly endorses violence, by the way. I mean, they believe literally that Trump supporters are fascists who must be confronted in the streets before they become, you know, Hitler um, and, you know, violently attacked. I mean, they believe this and they say this out loud and the media, you know, doesn't report on them like they're any sort of threat. Um, you know, never mind that they were, they've also done, you know, a great deal of harm to undermine the cause of Black Lives Matter by going out there and fomenting violence in the name of larger, more peaceful crowds that don't agree with them. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, there's an absolute double standard here when it comes to reporting on this stuff, and it needs to be called out. But, you know, we're already seeing a situation here where there's, there's a total crack up. You know, the, the fact that the, the media is just you know, tearing their hair out about Trump supporters not, you know, accepting what they've said about the election or election fraud, um, you know, the welcome to the new norm. I mean, the media lie, has been lying to people for so long that they're no longer going to be trusted to be an intermediary for election results or a lot of the other things that they, they traditionally were. Now, does that make us worse off as a country? I mean, I don't know, but I also know that letting the media continue in its current status quo um, was a really dangerous situation, and there needs to be some pushback against uh, things that they're doing. You write in your piece in RealClearPolitics.com that uh, Trump will prove to be a consequential president if for no other reason than post-2020 it will be impossible to pretend major media outlets aren't willing to put their thumbs on the scale. So uh, given that uh, landscape, what does it provide in terms of perhaps new outlets, particularly of a broadcast nature on, on television um, uh, specifically, perhaps in print as well, but really on television where there isn't much uh, conservative content uh, other than some opinion shows on Fox and Newsmax TV? You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the, you know, legacy media channels are, you know, as I've mentioned, even constricting. You know, Twitter is basically squeezing conservatives and actively censoring information. Facebook's doing the same. Uh, there's been explosion, explosion of interest in alternate social media like Parler, um, which is kind of a Twitter competitor. Um, but, you know, I just don't know how we're going to have to see how it shakes out, because as of right now, there isn't a whole lot of outlets um, around the sort of media gatekeepers, but I, I do know that if you're going to in the next election you have an entirely different attitude, in the sense that like, um, you know, Republican conservative voters are going to dismiss polls out of hand. I think finally, and you know, so they reject that the media keeps talking about that nonsense, um, and they're definitely going to have an increasingly hostile attitude um, toward the media as as well. I think that they should because time and time again we saw that the media had entirely different you know standards uh for how they reported on trump stories you know that that anonymous thing at the new york times is a great example i mean they made a high level editorial decision to present like a a man buried in the the, the department of homeland security literally no one's ever heard of as some high level right. you know, official who was dissenting yes. and that kind of overt dishonesty is going to have a really negative effect to the point where People are going to completely reject the media out of hand, and whatever that whatever that means, it is it's going to mean that there are going to be alternate avenues for people to sort of communicate and, and get their news. He is Mark Hemingway, senior writer, RealClearInvestigations.com. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. This, this, this. 
is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Didn't have a chance to get into uh, as much of Judge uh, Justice, I should say, Alito's comments from last week's Federalist Society Lawyers Convention as I wanted to earlier in the program. So let's get to them. We spoke a, a little bit with uh, Stephen Hayward about uh, Alito's comments as it pertained to one of the first freedoms. That's freedom of speech. Uh, but he was that's more generally about the culture, specifically about covid and what has transpired in 2020 because of the outbreak and the choices we made in terms of the policy response to the outbreak. Justice Alito had this to say. I'm now going to say something that I hope will not be twisted or misunderstood, but I have spent more than 20 years in Washington, so I'm not overly optimistic. In any event, here goes. The pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. Now, notice what I am not saying or even implying. I am not diminishing the severity of the virus's threat to public health. And putting aside what I will say shortly about a few Supreme Court cases, I'm not saying anything about the legality of COVID restrictions, nor am I saying anything about whether any of these restrictions represent good public policy. I'm a judge, not a policymaker. All that I'm saying is this, and I think it is an indisputable statement of fact. We have never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those experienced for most of 2020. And as Justice Alito predicted, those uh, words were immediately distorted uh, beyond recognition, uh, and uh, the qualifications that were included there, not underestimating the severity of the virus, not making a comment on the public policy choices, were you know, immediately discarded, uh, suggesting that uh, it is Justice Alito who is being myopic rather than his critics. He is talking about the restrictions that have been imposed mainly by executive fiat and uh, the complete absence of balancing the interests of individual rights with the interests of the public's health, calling this a constitutional stress test at Alito. The COVID crisis has served as a sort of constitutional stress test, and in doing so, it has highlighted disturbing trends that were already present before the virus struck. One of these is the dominance of lawmaking by executive fiat rather than legislation. The vision of early 20th century progressives and the New Dealers of the 1930s was that policymaking would shift from narrow-minded elected legislators to an elite group of appointed experts. In a word, the policymaking would become more scientific. That dream has been realized to a large extent. Every year, administrative agencies acting under broad delegations of authority churn out huge volumes of regulations that dwarf the statutes enacted by the people's elected representatives. And what have we seen in the pandemic? Sweeping restrictions imposed, for the most part, under statutes that confer enormous executive discretion. That's right. And uh, so this gets into that other freedom that we talked a little bit less about with Stephen Hayward, that other first freedom, freedom of conscience, religious liberty, and what has transpired with respect to people's First Amendment religious liberty rights during the pandemic. Had apparently concluded that Marylanders could safely engage in all sorts of activities outside the home, such as visiting an indoor exercise facility a hair or nail salon, and the state's casinos. 
If deference was appropriate in the California and Nevada cases, then surely we should have deferred to the Federal Food and Drug Administration on an issue of drug safety. But no, in this instance, the right in question was the abortion right, not the right to religious liberty, and the abortion right prevailed. The right to the free exercise of religion is not the only once-cherished freedom that is falling in the estimation of some segments of the population. Support for freedom of speech is also in danger, and COVID rules have restricted speech in unprecedented ways. As I mentioned, attendance at speeches, lectures, conferences, conventions, rallies, and other similar events has been banned or limited. And some of these restrictions are alleged to have included discrimination based on the viewpoint of the speaker. Even before the pandemic, there was growing hostility to the expression of unfashionable views. That's right, and which we did talk about with Hayward. But here's the point he was making about religious liberty in the case he started with. This was uh, uh, the abortion pill, not having to come in to get your abortion pill in the state of Maryland that had previously been required. And yet there were other outdoor activities that were deemed safe by the state of Maryland so that you could go get some you could go pick up uh, something to eat and so forth go to a health club. But for the abortion pill, it was okay to mail it, even though the state required you to pick up in person for the, the per, you know obvious purposes of verification, consultation with the pharmacist about uh, the taking of medicine, uh, medicine, taking of a pill that uh, that has such profound implications, starting with health of the individual taking it, perhaps being able available to answer questions. But no, that was discarded. Because, as Alito said, it was the abortion right, in quotation marks, that was at bar. In Nevada, casinos versus churches. Casinos stayed open. Uh, churches were restricted. The same sort of dynamic in California. So treating institutions of faith less favorably than favored institutions of commerce whether it's a medical marijuana dispensary in California or a casino in Nevada, becomes a problem. And oh, by the way, there is something worth noting, too, in this era of discussions of national lockdowns, national mask requirements, because we need a national policy. So say the experts, the Tony Fauci's of the world who say people are resistant to listen to a permanent ruling class, tell them what to do. But this is the time where you should basically do what they tell you to do. Well, Alito providing perhaps an indication the Supreme Court will be a backstop on your individual liberties, which would be a nice change of pace, thanks to the seating of Amy Coney Barrett. On the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, that those proponents of national lockdown, national mask requirements have uh, hung their jurisprudential hat on. It's important to keep Jacobson in perspective. Its primary holding rejected a substantive due process challenge to a local measure that targeted a problem of limited scope. It did not involve sweeping restrictions imposed across the country for an extended period. And it does not mean that whenever there is an emergency, executive officials have unlimited, unreviewable discretion. Yeah, so uh, be careful reading too much from uh, a uh, policy instituted in Cambridge, Massachusetts to deal with smallpox to something that the federal government would try to impose as a one-size-fits-all national policy, says Alito. And hopefully at least four other justices say so with him. This is Dan Brown. You can never surrender. Can never surrender. The 
listen to podcasts of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show as we close out this Monday installment, uh, sort of uh, combining aspects of a couple of our guests today, uh, both Stephen Hayward from Powerline Blog uh, earlier this hour and uh, Chris Arnotti earlier in the show in the second hour. The end of college as we know it. Uh, have you taken notice of this? The uh, common application for college had nearly 8% fewer first-year applications than in the same period last year, 10% fewer applicants. This application is used by more than 900 colleges and universities. The uh, president of the National Association for College Admissions Counseling said he knows of uh, peer schools with applications down at least 10% so far this year. Also, the uh, number of high school seniors who filled out the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA paperwork, for next school year down 16% from the last time this year. So the uh, reckoning is coming with some colleges, less the elite colleges, which are frankly mainly the problem, and more for those marginal colleges uh, that uh, reside somewhere between the open enrollment community colleges that have a more reasonable price point per credit hour and some of the elite schools, state schools as well as private schools, because there are certainly elite schools. This uh, very good piece by Douglas Belkin, The End of College as We Know It, which I sort of just referenced, in uh, at the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, uh, he uh, notes something that I think we most we all know intuitively: the proportion of Americans with a four-year college degree climbed to 36 percent in 2019. That's up from nine percent in 1965. So a fourfold increase over 50 years because of the press that was put on the need for the credentialing, the government money to borrow in order to get the credential. But um, he quotes our friend Orrin Cass over at American Compass in writing: "Those gains came at a price." For every high school student who graduates college and finds a job that leverages her degree, four fall short. They either never enroll in college, they drop out, or they graduate and wind up underemployed, according to Orrin Cass. About half take on debt that they come to regret. For millennials, college or bus created winners out of about 20% of the country's student and a bust for the rest, Mr. Cass says. Well, that's not a very good deal, and there are some case studies in Mr. Belkin's piece in the Wall Street Journal that highlight just that. Uh, and so this reckoning that's happening and, frankly, the desire for families to see credentialing for jobs reimagined. 2019 Kaplan survey of 2000 parents finding 74 percent favor a pathway for students that goes to go straight from high school to a full time job while taking college classes. And so what's happening, you know, who's filling the gap in addition to community colleges to some extent, companies like uh, Google, Amazon, Microsoft launching programs which certify vocational competence and lead to well-paying tech jobs in or outside their companies. As uh, a professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, says, the minute you have enough groups from industry or the military or nonprofits validate these things, the competence that you know, provide the credential, you provide a way of bypassing educational institutions, and that will open the door to people not having to get a bachelor's degree as a warrant to enter the workplace. So it's it's happening. It's going to happen. You will have colleges cease to exist or become a shadows of their former selves. And industry, to some extent, is filling the gap, but perhaps a return to more vocational schools at the K through 12 as as, you know, the end of K through 12 education, as we know it, uh, might also be in the offing. And uh, we're going to pick up that discussion tomorrow. Be certain of that. Thanks for joining us in this edition of the Dan Prof Show. And please revisit us tomorrow for that discussion and many others. This is the Dan Proft Show.